This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, police reveal the Weambilla shooters held extremist Christian beliefs and pre-planned the attack that's now described as religiously motivated terrorism. Also, two men found dead by rescue teams at an underground mine in remote Queensland. We'll look at the industry's safety record. And Australians would have the right to be forgotten online under proposed changes to the nation's privacy laws. But is it feasible? I suspect would be prohibitively expensive and time-consuming to do, considering the amount of data that is already out there on the internet and indexable and searchable. Thanks for your company. Queensland police have labelled last year's murder of two police officers and a neighbour at a property in Weambilla as a religiously motivated terrorist attack. After trawling through diaries, phone messages and online communications and taking almost 200 statements and recorded interviews, investigators now believe members of the Train family were driven to carry out the murders through their adherence to a Christian fundamentalist belief system known as premillennialism. As Stephanie Smale reports, it's the first time Christian ideology has been linked to an Australian terrorist attack. After weeks of trying to unpick what drove the trains to murder and maim police officers and their neighbour, Queensland Deputy Police Commissioner Tracy Linford says investigators have reached one major conclusion. Nathaniel... Gareth and Stacey Train acted as an autonomous cell and executed a religiously motivated terrorist attack. Queensland Police Constables Rachel McCrow and Matthew Arnold and neighbour Alan Dare were shot dead at the Weambilla property on Queensland's Western Downs in December. Deputy Commissioner Linford says weeks of picking through the property, reading texts, emails and Stacey Train's diary have revealed it was a carefully planned attack on police that they described in writing as monsters and demons. We even found that they had mirrors on trees. We suspect that was to help alert them if vehicles were travelling down the road. They had radios. Um, We even located a trapdoor under the house, which might have enabled an an easy escape. She says the trained family members subscribe to a broad Christian belief system called premillennialism, which is a belief that after a period of hard times or tribulation on earth, Christ will return for 1,000 years and provide peace and prosperity. Deputy Commissioner Linford explains it appears they weren't getting their theology from online forums or church groups, but interpretations of the Bible. What we can see is um, where they've actually labelled a script uh, within from a Bible and, and made notations around that, and there's multiple um, places where they've done that. A range of different things help contribute to their belief in this system. So the COVID pandemic, climate change global conflicts, social disparity, all those kind of things. Deputy Commissioner Tracy Linford says the deadly attack is unprecedented, but there's no danger anyone else was involved. Christian extremist ideology has been linked to other attacks around the world, but this is the first time we've seen it occur in Australia. But I want to stress there is absolutely no evidence at this time that there is anyone else in Australia that participated or assisted in this attack. 
We are not looking for anyone else in Australia. The Deputy Commissioner has pointed out extremists who act alone or in small groups are a major threat. Independent extremism researcher Kaz Ross says it's a global issue. The big danger is actually this exact problem of individuals that are not known to groups, they're not connected into groups, but they're very um, agitated by what they're reading and hearing and their beliefs and then feel that they have to act like saviours themselves. It's the same kind of thinking that motivates a lot of the mass shooters, uh, the extremist mass shooters in America. Michelle Grossman is a Professor of Diversity and Community Resilience at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. She says cases of extremist, targeted and terrorist violence are becoming more and more complicated and attacks are unlikely to be driven by a single factor like religion. Religion itself, uh, no matter which religion you're talking about, um, is, is never a cause of violent extremism. But what you can get are particular belief strands or interpretations uh, of particular um, doctrines or particular orthodoxies. How worried should people be about religion being weaponised in Australia? Is this an ongoing threat? I, I don't think that there is cause for panic uh, or concern. All violent extremism begins with grievance. So people who have grievances and who find frameworks that help them um, either explain their grievance or, you know, more to the point, um, give them a framework for deciding how they're going to act. We now see both individuals and groups blend um, conspiracy beliefs alongside sovereign citizen beliefs, alongside, uh, you know, perhaps religious beliefs. We're seeing increasing uh, almost sort of DIY ideologies start to emerge that help them um, first of all, frame their grievance, tell a story about it, and then, unfortunately, in, in a minority of cases, um, actually think about mobilising to violent action. That's Professor Michelle Grossman from Deakin University, Stephanie Smale reporting. Two miners reported missing at a zinc mine in northwest Queensland have been found dead. The men were working at a site more than 120 metres underground when the ground beneath their vehicle gave way plunging them into a 25-metre-deep hole. A drilling rig behind their car also fell into the hole, but the operator was able to escape and was rescued. Teams worked through the night to reach the vehicle, and they reached the site this afternoon. Rachel Mealy reports. Miners Dylan Langridge and Trevor Davis died at work. They were 125 metres underground when the ute they were driving plummeted into a deep void. The Dougald zinc mine is outside Cloncurry in northwestern Queensland. Before learning of their deaths, the Prime Minister said he was keeping the miners and the nearby town of Cloncurry in his thoughts. At this time, uh, our thoughts are with uh, the family of these two men, but also all the people of Curry. I know what a close-knit uh, community uh, Curry is. Uh, everyone knows everyone in that town and our thoughts are with them today. Australian Workers Union Secretary Stacey Chenoul says there have been close to 50 deaths at Queensland mines in the last 23 years, and she wants a full investigation. The reality is the industry really does need to stand up and take notice because any incident that occurs, any fatality occurs, uh, the controls need to be in place and the industry needs to start taking these things seriously. These are real people we are talking about with real families and real loved ones. 
Michael Quinlan is Emeritus Professor of Industrial Relations at the University of New South Wales. We also need to know if there's been unplanned falls of ground in the mine um, prior to the incident and particularly in that area. So were there any problems in that area prior to the incident? Um, and there, there often is. I mean, it could be a completely unpredictable event, but often with these fatalities, there are warning signals prior to that. He says the mining industry has improved its safety records, specifically in relation to preventing accidents involving large numbers of miners. It has improved. Um, Australia probably has, in my view, the safest mining industry in the world, and it has improved significantly. Um, particularly in relation to multiple fatality incidents, and now I'm talking about more than two workers being killed. Um, those figures, we haven't had a serious much major fatality incident um, since basically the, the mid-1990s, um, and or actually there was a, a one in the late 90s at a metalliferous mine in New South Wales. But Professor Quinlan says the record of accidents like this one hasn't improved and needs to be addressed. What hasn't improved so much is single and double fatalities in the industry. The trend lines in Queensland and elsewhere are not improving over time and that needs to be a major target of both industry and the regulator. Emeritus Professor Michael Quinlan there speaking with Rachel Mealy. The unemployment rate has risen for the second month in a row, going from 3.5% to 3.7% in January. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the number of people in employment fell by 11,500. The Treasurer says it's expected. The opposition used the word ominous. While the figures may be driven by seasonal change, experts say it's likely jobs growth will soften further in the months ahead. Richard Fitzgerald has more. Consecutive rate rises are tough enough, but those out of work and trying to pay a mortgage are really feeling the pinch. Oh, there's good days and bad days. Um, it is like, you know, it is pretty deflating. Aaron bought a house in Port Pirie a year ago. He's still on a fixed loan, but since his government contract and community development work came to an end in November, he's been looking for a new job, nervously watching interest rates rise. With my savings being whittled down, um, you know, with the monthly payments that keep on coming out, insurance, bills, everything's gone up. Um, so, yeah, I'm having to ration uh, my spending at the moment. I've probably gone down to, you know, $100 a week maximum that I can spend. And, yeah, I'm like, haven't really left the house. I haven't seen my friends. Just, yeah, really limiting my spending just to make sure that I've got a roof over my head. The unemployment rate rose in January from 3.5% to 3.7%. It's the second consecutive month of declines in employment. Treasurer Jim Chalmers. We have been expecting... Uh, an uptick in the unemployment rate as the economy slows a bit, as the obvious consequence uh, of a slowing global economy mixed with the impact of interest rate rises here in our own economy. The rise in unemployment comes as the Reserve Bank of Australia signals there will be further interest rate rises in the months ahead. Jim Chalmers again. Our objective, our aspiration uh, is to try and grow the economy as fast as we can, with unemployment as low as it can be, without adding to these inflationary pressures. And obviously there's a relationship uh, between all of those objectives in the economy. The opposition took a more pessimistic view. Today uh, we saw ominous signs in the jobs data, the early signs of a very dangerous combination. Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor. Higher cost of living, job losses, 
These are the outcomes uh, that are the worst case scenario for Australians under the current circumstances and we need a government with a coherent plan that can deal with those risks. Andrew McKellar, the Chief Executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, says the rise in the jobless rate is consistent with several other economic indicators. There is very clear evidence uh, emerging now that uh, the economy has been softening. Uh, the rises in interest rates that we've seen through the course of uh, the past uh, nine or ten months uh, are now starting to have a real impact. Andrew McKellar says uncertainty is contributing to the rise in unemployment. We've had challenges now uh, for some period of time in terms of uh, securing uh, skilled labour, uh, supply chains have been disrupted, uh, businesses have been dealing with uh, the impact of higher costs, uh, energy prices uh, in particular. Uh, we're now seeing um, the impact of rising interest rates uh, uh, eating into demand. Uh, that's making conditions uh, softer. There is a great deal more uncertainty out there now about what lies ahead uh, for business. And of course, that is now starting to affect uh, things like uh, hiring decisions. The numbers that we are observing now in unemployment have to be set in the context of what we have experienced over the last several months. Fabrizio Carmignani is an economics professor and dean of Griffith Business School at Griffith University. Unemployment has been very low in Australia, has been very low by uh, historical standards. It's been very low by what we would consider as a long-term sort of equilibrium of the labour market. Uh, the global economy is slowing down. The Australian economy that has been running very well is also uh, slowing down. So it's inevitable that unemployment will go up. While unemployment may be inevitable, Fabrizio Camignani says those out of work should be supported to re-enter the workforce through both government payments and retraining. Of course, it is important to have in place a welfare system to support people who are, who are unemployed. Uh, it is very important to make sure that we have in place active labour market policies that help people who have become unemployed find a new job or eventually requalify for a new job. Back in Port Pirie, Aaron says he's managing, but he's very aware that it's those already struggling that are bearing the brunt of unemployment pressures and rate rises. You know, it's fine if you're on $130,000 and, you know, got all these savings, but I guess for the lower middle income Australia, then it is, it's, it's tough and the workers always the one who would deal with them. It's not necessarily the rich bankers sitting in their cosy offices in Sydney. That's job seeker Aaron ending Bridget Fitzgerald's report. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, Indigenous marine rangers from across the Northern Territory come together to share evidence of the effects of climate change. The sea level's rising. Um, the turtles are... Uh... Langburn nests, they're getting buried in the sand and drowning and no chance to the eggs hatching. Australia's privacy laws were thrust into the spotlight following the massive data breaches at Medibank and Optus last year. Well, now a new report from the Attorney-General's Department has recommended more than 100 changes to the Privacy Act. If implemented, they'd see Australians given the right to be forgotten online, with organisations forced to delete their personal data. Oliver Gordon has been taking a look. It's not yet government policy, but it's clear Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus is open to being guided by his department when it comes to changing the Privacy Act. The comprehensive review that my department has completed now 
has found that the Privacy Act is no longer fit for purpose and does not adequately protect Australians' privacy in the digital age. After millions of customers' personal data was leaked by large companies last year, the Albanese government significantly increased penalties for serious or repeated privacy breaches. But Attorney General Dreyfus says he wants to do more. Australian people rightly expect greater protections, transparency and control over their personal information. The Attorney-General's Department report, commissioned by the Morrison government back in 2019, has made 116 recommendations for change. Key among the proposals is that information being collected by organisations is done in a fair and reasonable way. Australian Information and Privacy Commissioner Angeline Falk is backing that idea. So, for example, if you're downloading a flashlight app on your phone, you're not expecting your location data to be accessed. The Commissioner's also welcomed a recommendation for small businesses to do more to safeguard the data they keep on record. The Privacy Act only applies to businesses with a turnover of $3 million or more, and that's only about 5% of all Australian businesses. Uh, for example, many real estate agents might have a turnover of under $3 million, but yet for renters, they're collecting very sensitive information around uh, driver's licence, date of birth, employment history and so on. And the community rightly expects that that will be kept secure. It's not just small businesses that would be required to make changes. The vast amount of personal data political parties have on record would also need to be better protected under the proposed changes. Because as we know, political parties do collect uh, vast amounts of personal information and it's important that there's transparency around how that information is handled and that it's kept secure. Electronic Frontiers Australia Vice Chair Catherine Gledhill-Tucker was personally impacted by recent data breaches. The privacy advocate has been buoyed by the recent interest in the area. It was not a pleasant experience, but it did increase that kind of like public literacy of data collection and data breaches. She's pleased to see an ambitious reform agenda with some elements similar to the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union, or GDPR. But she hopes lawmakers know how challenging implementing some of the measures may be. There are a few GDPR-inspired individual rights that came up in this report, one of them being the, the right to be forgotten or the right to erasure, um, which basically just says that you as an individual should be able to request the deletion of any uh, personally identifying data relevant to you from, from an organisation's database. There is also the right to object to the collection use or disclosure of personal information, the right to correction of information and the right to de-index online search results. So tell us particular with regard to that de-indexation, what would that actually, what does that look like in places where it is already in existence? This particular right to de-index online search results is unclear how it would work in practice and I suspect would be prohibitively expensive and time consuming to do considering the amount of data that is already out there on the internet and indexable and searchable. She also sees challenges around implementing changes to targeted ads that the report suggests would protect children from inappropriate targeted advertising. Because how do you know if someone's a child? Do you ask for uh, identification or do you use some other kind of fingerprinting mechanism to 
identify uh, the age of somebody, it it necessarily means that you need to relinquish or, or give up more personal information, which then increases the risk of that information being mishandled. Despite her scepticism around some elements of the report, she's glad to see the issue of privacy back on the public agenda. Especially after seeing data breaches late last year, we need some urgent reform. That's Catherine Gledhill-Tucker from Electronic Frontiers Australia, Oliver Gordon reporting. Almost a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's evidence the spring offensive Ukraine's been warning about is getting underway. Vladimir Putin has mobilised thousands of fresh troops in recent weeks and increased production of weapons and ammunition. But after a months-long stalemate in the east, Russia's capacity to sustain an offensive is coming under question. Nell Whitehead has more. Ukrainian soldiers near the town of Vuladar have held off one Russian assault after another since last month. But this man of the Ukrainian 79th Air Assault Brigade says the fire's getting heavier. The enemy's artillery and mortar attacks have increased, he says. Previously, there were a couple of attacks a day, but now there are more than 10 attacks a day. For months, Ukraine has warned that Russia was planning a spring offensive to break the stalemate in the country's east. And with troops and weapons pouring into Ukraine, NATO's Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg says the offensive is getting underway. And we see no signs that Russia is preparing for peace. On the contrary... Russia is launching new uh, offensives. Ukrainian forces have come under growing pressure, ceding some ground in villages around the eastern Donbass region. And NATO warns that Kyiv's burning through shells faster than Western countries can produce them. So what we see is uh, an enormous uh, expenditure of ammunition. Uh, and we have seen that for several months. And that's also the reason why we actually started to address that last fall. Um, Yes, uh, the United States, France have signed the contracts, but also other allies, Germany, Norway, and there are also others who have already signed contracts with the defence industry, meaning that production is now ramping up. According to Britain's Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, 97% of Russia's army is now in Ukraine. The question is how much Russia has left in reserve in the tank uh, to, uh, to push even harder. That's Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Because in the vast majority of cases, the Ukrainian armed forces have either held uh, and pushed back the Russian offensives or, you know, given ground very, very slowly. So um, it's a sort of question of, of is, is this it at the moment for the Russian offensive? Russia's suffered huge losses around Vuladar. In one week alone, Ukraine claims Moscow lost 130 armoured vehicles, including 36 tanks, in its attacks on the town. Ukrainian drone footage provided to CNN shows images of tanks careening into minefields and Russian soldiers carrying in bushes. According to some estimates, Russia may have lost half its operation tank fleet since the start of the war. It really doesn't say an awful lot about their their ability to do offensive operations and that's always the problem when you rely on large numbers of of mobilised infantry people who who are being conscripted often against their will into the fighting and given very limited training. Um, You can use them, I suppose, to to hold the line for a while, but uh, to actually take ground is, is very difficult. And I think we've seen that 
in in the way that mobilized forces have been used by the Russians in uh, you know sort of human waves. Uh, one commentator called them human sacrifices mm. um, to reveal where the Ukrainians are after they get shot at and killed. Uh, and then send regular Russian armed forces in to, uh, to try and fight the Ukrainians. Uh, that's an incredibly wasteful way to, to conduct a, a battle, not, not to mention a, an enormous human tragedy as well. Ukrainian data suggests 824 Russian soldiers are dying daily this month, the highest rate since the start of the war. But Russia has an advantage. It can draft more. Ukraine claims that it could order the mobilisation of as many as 500,000 conscripts in its next draft. Vladimir Putin has effectively an endless stream of people that he can call up for mobilisation. Uh, and Russia has very, very deep war stocks. Uh, and a lot of it is old, antiquated kit, but in many respects, it doesn't need to work particularly well when you're just throwing it in great big waves against an adversary. It's just sort of sheer weight of numbers in the end. February 24th marks a year since Moscow's invasion and the war Russia thought would be over in days grinds on. Nell Whitehead reporting. Indigenous marine rangers working around the remote Northern Territory coastline are reporting increasingly worrying signs of the impact of climate change. They're pooling the information they've collected and enlisting the help of university scientists to try to get government policymakers to respond. Here's Jane Barden. Jason DeSantis has been monitoring the remote coast of the Tiwi Islands for 30 years. He's the Tiwi Indigenous Marine Ranger Supervisor and he's become increasingly worried about climate change impacts threatening the endangered Olive Ridley turtles. The sea level's rising, um, the turtles are laying their nests, they're getting buried in the sand and drowning and no chance to the eggs hatching. You notice that there has been more inundation of the nests by seawater than you saw, you know, when you were much younger? Yes, of course. I've, I've seen a lot of difference in over 30 years of this. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a big change. His ranger group is one of nine who are sharing observations and strategies on how to protect the biodiversity hotspots they manage along the NT coast. They've come together in Darwin to share their results. Our eggs are getting drowned. So we've actually had to move, that, relocate those eggs onto higher grounds. Ganyi ranger Cynthia Cooper is proud to be working on Croker Island to protect animals from marine rubbish and abandoned nets. Sea turtles, so that's either greenback, flatback, leatherback, hawksbill, olive bridley, manta rays and dolphins. She's also worried that the rising sea level is eroding the coast and killing trees. Some of the casuarinas that have been there that it's washed away now, washing away. I'm pretty worried that it will be keep rising. Garrick Gunuk Barlu National Park Ranger Dylan Cooper has been observing the sea turtle nest temperatures rising on the Coburg Peninsula since 2015. The rangers are worried many are now over 29 degrees Celsius, which turns all the eggs female, and some have reached 35 degrees, which kills the eggs. They're probably in the um, Hawksbill turtle, they're only you know, a small turtle and their nest chamber is a lot you know, shallower, so they're going to cop more of the sun than the other greens and that which are like a metre deep or so, it's going to affect them. They might not even come back again. Scary. They and some of the other ranger groups are considering stepping in to build shade structures over the nests. 
His colleague Robert Risk says they're protecting as many nests as they can with special pyramid-shaped cages to stop dingoes from digging them up. Yeah, with the protective cages, that is um, you know, a game-changer, really. The olive ridleys themselves and hawksbills, there's not many areas for them to come up and nest, and so it's really good to have that. He says sea level rise off the Coburg Peninsula is turning freshwater wetlands salty. In swampy areas where there's magpie geese where they, they nest, um, those swamps are being basically salt intrusion and killing out the um, melaleuca trees. Um, so I've, I've seen that um, just within my lifetime. He hopes presenting the findings, along with those of the other groups, will encourage governments to provide more funding. If we can get that funding, it is going to help the environment, like, you know, when we start recording hard data, and then that way we can actually see, you know, the changes and all that, and, when, and maybe what we're doing is slowing down that process. The Rangers are working with researchers from universities in the NT, New South Wales and Queensland, including Dr Carol Palmer from Charles Darwin University. Everyone has mentioned climate change, uh, sea level rise and sea temp rise. So I think we've actually got to start to focus on that across our remote areas and start to record that data because we need it right now. Tiwi Ranger James DeSantis thinks governments haven't listened closely enough in the past and he's hopeful they will pay more attention in the future. The Rangers are the eyes, the ears, everything. And we try and feed this back to the government and the government's sort of stepping around us more or less. Do you hope by banding with the other Ranger groups you might be able to start changing that? Yes, this is a good thing that all us Rangers are getting together and uh, putting all their heads together and ideas and... And uh, the government should really sit down and listen to us rangers that are here. They should start listening to us, the government. That's Tiwi Ranger Jason DeSantis talking to Jane Barden. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can check out ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The death toll from the Turkish and Syrian earthquake has surpassed 40,000. Today, the ABC's Alison Horn from one of the worst hit Turkish cities, where residents are furious the buildings they were told were safe simply crumbled to the ground. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.